I do not want, nor would I accept the Republican nomination. Got it. So you're considering the nomination? No, no, I'm not. Yeah, he is. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Now out in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus at Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and yes, five days a week on Radio Sputnik, blanketing the earth. You can run, but you can't hide from the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. We will have a very interesting conversation, at least I hope, uh, shortly. Uh, on the heels of what happened uh, a few days ago in in New York uh, for their uh, primary election up there on Tuesday, where they had both Republican and Democratic primary elections that were closed to anyone who was not a Republican or a Democrat. No independents were allowed. You had to be signed up for one of those two parties and you had to sign up. Uh, you had to have your party affiliation set in any event. By last October, in order to vote on what April 19, really? Uh, I'll, I'll be talking to someone shortly uh, who has what he says is a much better idea for our primary system uh, that goes even beyond open primaries where where anyone can vote in in the party primary. So uh, that will be coming up shortly. Uh, however, some uh, disturbing and breaking news today, shocking news, actually. Uh, the artist who will forever be known as Prince uh, died today, incredibly enough, at the age of 57. TMZ was the first to break the news that uh, Prince's body was discovered at his Paisley Park compound in Minnesota early on Thursday. There was uh, an emergency dispatch that uh, TMZ uh, obtained initially uh, that said, male down, not breathing. Prince Rogers Nelson, as, uh, as his full name uh, went, uh, had a medical emergency uh, on April 15th, a few days ago, last week, I guess, that uh, forced his private uh, jet to make an emergency landing in Illinois. Then he later appeared at a concert the next day, assuring fans he was OK. He had told people that he was battling the flu virus at the time. 
Uh, and uh, prior to uh, his most recent appearance, uh, Prince had canceled two shows because of health concerns. Uh, Prince became an international superstar in 1982, as TMZ notes, uh, with his breakthrough album 1999, and then went out to churn out a ton of hits, racked up seven Grammys, more than 30 nominations, sold more than 100 million records during his career, won the Academy Award for Best Original Score for Purple Rain in 1995, and was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004. According to the sheriff's department, uh, he was found in an elevator at Paisley Park, uh, his home and recording studios. They performed CPR, but they were unable to revive him, and he was announced dead on the scene at 10.07 a.m. Central Time. Uh, kind of amazing. They say no signs of foul play. It, it would seem to be related uh, to the flu virus. Uh, just absolutely Amazing to lose uh, uh, an icon of music at that early age of 57. I know, such a shock, such a, a real, a real surprise yep. uh, to to find someone whose music has been so embedded in in our culture mm. in the last 20 years, 20 yep. and 30 years. You know that somebody who was, you know, at first started out as this this upstart, and then you know there was that stretch of time where he was widely ridiculed by the corporate media for changing his name to the Unk symbol, that Egyptian <laughs> symbol, the artist formerly known as Prince, and which he did because of a dispute with his recording right, label. Exactly. It wasn't just a, right. It yeah. wasn't just you know for marketing. I just thought that it was really funny and hilarious that he did that, and mm -hmm. you know more power to him and. So it, it is it is a real shock. Last year, while addressing the unrest in Baltimore following the death of Freddie Gray in police custody, Prince released uh, a song by the name of Baltimore, which he performed at a benefit concert in the city. He gave a portion of the proceeds to the youth groups there. So uh, shocking, stunning news. And uh, I, I'm sure you have heard about it by now. Uh, folks are talking about it all over the media today. But uh, but it is uh, still remarkable. All right. And of course, that was uh, Desi Doyen, yes. our producer here. Hi, Des. Hi. Uh, and I wanted to start off actually with you and a, uh, a correction. You owe from yesterday's program. Uh, you had said in reference to Andrew Jackson being taken off of the uh, off of the twenty dollar bill uh, to be replaced by African American aboli uh, abolitionist Harriet Tubman for a former slave uh, who who went back and forth through the Underground Railroad some thirteen times to free uh, slave uh, slave families. Uh, and so you had a correction, because I want to quote uh, what you said. <laughs> I, I believe, if I have this quote right, you said that you were just happy to get the racist off the money in reference yes. to Andrew Jackson. You said you wanted to make uh, a correction today, I think, because, uh, well, we, I, I assume you would like to issue an apology now to President <laughs> Andrew Jackson. Hell Is that the no. correction you wanted to? No, not at all. Really? I have no no apology necessary for what? President Andrew Jackson. The only correction I wanted to make was he was not the only racist because obviously Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and other presidents and slave other owners. founding fathers yeah. were slave owners. I will point out none of them were slave traders like Andrew Jackson. Was he a slave trader? He was a slave trader. Okay. So he uh, he he benefited from the slave trade. So what do you mean you wanted to apologize? For I know I said I wanted to retract saying get the racists off the money that we should still get racists off the money. I don't know how that's going to happen. However, I think I will change that instead of saying get the racist off the money. 
get the genocidal maniac off the money. <laughs> oh, I see. For his uh, genocidal uh, campaign against the Native Americans of America, whose land I this see. actually was. I, well, thank you for clarifying that. You're welcome. Uh, because, and, and of course, we also have to mention, of course, that you have a a, a dog in this hunt. Your what is it? Your great 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 my grandfather. Fifth, my fifth great grandfather yeah. was uh, an instrumental figure in the Indian removal and in the Trail of Tears. Uh, I'm a descendant of the Cherokee, and he was somebody who who tried to save them and was actually the one who who participated in bringing the lawsuit to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that the Indian Removal Act was unconstitutional. And Andrew Jackson, president at the time, turned around and said, oh, that's what they'd like? Well, let them enforce it. That was uh, that that great great grandfather of yours, or fifth whatever great grandfather was, of course, a man by the name of Major Ridge. If people want to look it up, yes. and he was uh, eventually assassinated right. uh, for what he did in trying to save the Cherokee. Uh, he and what five uh, family he members and, on the same day? Right. He and his son and his uh, his son, his his nephew and a couple of other people were all assassinated on the same day in the eighteen. I think it's eighteen thirty six. All right. Well, uh, so thank you, you for go. clarifying that. And uh, I'm sure Andrew Jackson accepts your apology. <laughs> there was uh, you were not the only one, of course, to have a reaction to Harriet Tubman uh, bumping Jackson from the twenty dollar bill. Uh, but uh, while your response, I think, was appropriate, some uh, <laughs> some of these right wingers, their uh, responses were. Well, I'll let you decide if they were appropriate. Donald Trump uh, on Thursday morning at a town hall called the move, quote, pure political correctness. He said it's, quote, very rough to pull Jackson's likeness from the $20 bill. Ben Carson, remember him? Uh, he uh, he was uh, he's now a Trump campaign surrogate. And uh, he had said that while he loves Harriet, Tub he's also African-American, by the way. So while he loves uh, Harriet Tubman, he said, quote, we can find another way to honor her, like putting her on the two dollar bill instead. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's, that's an what honor. he said. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Ben Carson went on to praise Jackson despite the fact that he ordered the forced relocation of nearly 50,000 Native Americans, your ancestors, Desi Doyen, uh, he called uh, Andrew Jackson a, quote, tremendous president. Good Lord. And if anyone knows tremendous presidents, it's Ben Carson who has, uh, who has endorsed Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, uh, Congressman Lamar Alexander of Tennessee said that uh, you said that uh, we could honor Jackson's legacy. Uh, I'm sorry, we can honor Harriet Tubman without casting aside former president Andrew Jackson. Uh, he said that the United States history is not Andrew Jackson versus Harriet Tubman. And it is not uh, in a statement. He said it's unnecessary to diminish Jackson in order to honor Tubman, Jackson was the first common man to be elected president. He fought to save the Union. He defended an American era. He helped found the Democratic Party. Uh, of course, Lamar Alexander is uh, uh, a native son of Tennessee, as is Andrew Jackson. And so he, he may have a dog in that hunt as well. But meanwhile, over on Fox News, Greta Van Susteren, who's normally not insane, uh, she called it a completely unnecessary fight by the Obama administration to remove Andrew Jackson and replace him with Harriet Tubman. She called it a completely unnecessary fight that could have been avoided by giving Tubman her own denomination like the $25 bill. 
Oh, boy. That's what she, she said. We could use a $25 bill. Put her picture on that. We could all celebrate. That's the smart and easy thing to do. Yes, creating an entirely new denomination uh, of, of uh, paper currency would be totally easy. Totally easy to do. What could possibly be difficult yes, about that? Oh, no, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, you can imagine the predictable responses from the right over this. Uh, although, uh, unpredictably, I suppose, uh, National Review writer Charles Cook uh, cast Tubman as a Republican and gun rights hero. Oh, no. Yes. And, of course, there were uh, memes that were posted to the internets trying to flip the script on Democrats. I guess this is a, a Democratic Party thing, I guess. Who knew? Uh, the young conservatives put out a, a graphic that said, Slave-owning founder of the Democrat Party replaced on $20 bill by gun-toting Republican. Life is good. Oh, my. At least they found the upside. Speaking <laughs> of paper... Uh, paper money in that case. Uh, we, we've got these uh, five primaries coming up all on one day next Tuesday, April 26th in Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island. And a lot of those uh, states, most notably, uh, I should say, uh, Pennsylvania, still uses 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. And this is a big state and it's a key state, uh, particularly for Bernie Sanders. He needs to do well in Pennsylvania. He needs to pick up, if possible, a lot of delegates. But I'm telling you in advance, because nobody else will, that when the results come out in uh, in Pennsylvania, they will be 100 percent unverifiable. Whatever the results are is what the results will be, because they use largely across the entire state, I think, at this point still, 100 uh, percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems in which it is impossible to know if any vote ever cast on any of those machines during an actual election for any candidate uh, or issue on the ballot has ever been recorded accurately. And yet they still hate their voters so much in the state of Pennsylvania that they force them to use these touchscreen voting machines. So who knows? What the answer will be, uh, what the results will be, who knows if they will be correct or incorrect. It is impossible to know. That said, also on the same day, it's the state of Maryland. Uh, they will be one of the other five states that are having their primary on Tuesday. Now, the state of Maryland, as we have long reported at, uh, at Bradblog.com, the state of Maryland, along with the state of Georgia, were the first two states to go to these 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting machines. They both went to uh, uh, the, the contract for the entire state, went to a company by the name of Diebold. That name may ring a bell to you uh, at the time. So across uh, both states, Georgia and Maryland, they have been using these uh, Diebold touchscreen voting systems ever since, despite the fact that we have shown year after year uh, for years now at Bradblog.com how easily hacked they are how horribly made they are, how, as I said, they are unverifiable. And this was all very controversial years ago. Years ago, when I would report on these verifiable facts, I was called a conspiracy theorist, a sore loser, or whatever, whatever. Now people, uh, I think, uh, understand for the most part that, yes, these systems are, in fact, completely unverifiable uh, and are very easily hacked. Uh, they can even be hacked remotely. Uh, with uh, somewhat $25 worth of, of parts from uh, from Radio Shack. Radio Shack still open? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, Radio Shack or Best Buy, um, as, as I 
shown, you go to bradblog.com, you can look up the video of how Argonne National Laboratory uh, did exactly that, was able to change the votes of voters from uh, essentially, you know, the parking lot outside the uh, outside the, the, the polling place. Uh, years ago at bradblog.com, we, we caused quite a bit, quite a stir when we had a, uh, a, a, a an employee of Diebold, uh, someone who had worked with Diebold, who I still have not identified by name. Uh, I have described this person only as Deeb Throat. Uh, this person was instrumental uh, when the touchscreen voting machines were deployed in both Georgia and Maryland. Uh, and uh, that source told me at the time that the company did not care about security at all. They knew that these systems were not secure. They didn't care. They just wanted to sell them. So that was, uh, uh, as I said, the states of Georgia and Maryland. Well, we finally got some good news out of Maryland. It has taken many, many years and a lot of reporting and uh, a, a, a big secret study that the state of Maryland did that they never released that we were able to get to at bradblog.com some years ago and released it exclusively. You can still read it at bradblog.com. The state of Maryland did not want you to read it. Uh, talking about the vulnerabilities of those voting machines. Well, next Tuesday at this primary in Maryland, for the first time since 2002, Maryland is going back to ink pen and paper ballot for the presidential primary. Finally, the new system uh, will largely replace the touchscreen terminals, according to AP, which uh, were <laughs> claimed uh, to eliminate the hanging chads and other problems discerning voter intent on the paper punch card ballots that uh, uh, we all remember from the 2000 presidential election. Of course, that's not why they stopped counting those paper ballots. It wasn't because they were hard to discern. It was because the Republicans did not want to count those ballots because they would have shown that Al Gore won. But let's not relitigate that, shall we? Uh, they, uh, Maryland, implemented those machines, the touchscreen machines, in 2002. But as AP says, glitches and security concerns led to the General Assembly finally voting in 2007 for a return to paper balloting. But it has taken that many years. It has taken since 2007. As the state legislature and uh, uh, the governor there have put it off year after year after year, have put off replacing those unverifiable touchscreens with paper ballots. They have now finally done so. They have leased new voting systems from uh, ES, a company by the name of ES&S. Diebold is no longer in the voting machine business. Uh, ES&S still is, however, and uh, they've got a, a six-year contract with this private company, $28 million for optical scan computers. So the good news is voters will be able to vote on paper. The bad news is those paper ballots will be run through uh, optical scan computers, which are either uh, correct or incorrect. Nobody knows unless you actually bother to count the paper ballots. And interestingly, the State Board of Elections Administrator, a woman by the name of Linda Lamone, who has been the, uh, in charge of the State Board of Election now for years and years and years. I remember when she walked out of an interview that uh, we had done with her some years ago when we asked about these security concerns. Now, she's, and she's been one of the big supporters of touchscreen voting, did not want to go to paper ballots. Now, she says uh, to AP in a, in a telephone, uh, telephone interview, 
Quote, the electronic voting or e-voting is a long way off because there is no way to make it secure. Well, isn't that interesting? All of these years later, after she has been fighting for those electronic e-voting systems to keep them in place for so many years. Uh, Anyway, uh, potentially good news, hopefully good news for the state of Maryland uh, on Tuesday. We will see if they manage to print out enough paper ballots for everyone to vote, unlike states we've seen earlier this year uh, where paper ballots have run out because of poor planning by election officials. I hope that they do. In the meantime, uh, exit polls showed coming out of the uh, New York primary that uh, Democrats were more likely than Republicans to say that they were energized by the primary battles that are going on within their party. Two thirds of Democratic voters say that the contest between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders has energized the party. While GOP voters hold the opposite view, saying that uh, the, the the fight for the nomination in the Republican side has divided the has divided the party, has led to sparring uh, amongst party insiders, amongst the rank and file, and that is according to an exit poll that was conducted for the Associated Press. So uh, this system, uh, this fight for the nomination. According to Democrats at this exit polling has been uh, has been good for them, not so good for the Republican parties. In the meantime, the question of how these primary systems work at all or should work at all has come up now again and again as uh, both Democrats and Republicans have been challenging this crazy primary system, primary and caucus system that we have in this country. Can that system be reformed? Should it be reformed? We will talk about that next with my guest, John Opdyke. You're not going to want to miss this conversation. I hope to learn something, and I hope you will, too. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going or even just a one time only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, a lot of voters would be heading for the open door of an open presidential primary if they were allowed. Let me explain. Uh, We have been uh, covering a bunch of the concerns about the New York primary 
that happened on Tuesday and problems with uh, New York elections in general over the past week, including before the primary when we warned about what was likely to happen. In addition to the uh, mass voter purges that took place in the months beforehand uh, in the Empire State's recent primary election and the problems at the polling places with optical scan tabulation computers and at some locations problems with polling places opening at all, New York just has a terrible electoral system in general. They've got no early voting, no easy absentee voting. Uh, it's difficult to register. Uh, they, and they have a ridiculously early deadline to change your party affiliation to either Democrat or Republican if you want to participate in the state's closed primary election system, which only allows voters registered to the party in question to vote in the state's presidential and other primary elections. Uh, the question was asked on yesterday's broadcast, would Bernie Sanders have won the state of New York if it had not been a closed primary system out there, if the state's millions of non-party affiliated independent voters had been allowed to vote in the Democratic Party primary that Hillary Clinton reportedly won by some 16 percentage points over Sanders, would the results have been different? Now, of course, we can't know for certain. But what we do know is that independent voters in states that allow uh, the, those who are not necessarily registered as Democrats to participate in the primary or the caucus process in those states, Bernie has defeated Clinton again and again in many of those contests, those open contests. Specifically, he has been winning those uh, independent voters who might not get to vote in a closed primary. He's been winning those voters by huge margins over Hillary and highlighting what he says would be an advantage for him in the general election. Uh, that being support from independent and even Republican voters that he says he, not Hillary, would get. For example, according to the exit polls, from the open Democratic primary uh, on April 5th up in Wisconsin, where Bernie Sanders won by more than 13 points, both Sanders and Clinton each received about 50 percent of the votes of self-identified Democrats. But Sanders, he won the, the votes of independent voters by a whopping 72 to 28 percent over Hillary Clinton. Forty four points he beat her amongst independents who were allowed to participate in that Wisconsin primary. Now, uh, if New York had a similar system to that, that could have been well more than enough for Bernie Sanders to take the state of New York as well on Tuesday if they had open primaries uh, there, not to mention give Sanders decisive victories perhaps next week in uh, on April 26 in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Connecticut and Delaware, all of which will hold closed primaries next Tuesday, allowing only those registered as Democrats to participate in the party's nominating uh, uh, selection process in those states. So an open Democratic primary in New York and elsewhere might arguably have changed the course of history. And that's also true, by the way, on the Republican side, where Ted Cruz has tended to outperform Donald Trump more in state uh, nominating contests that only allowed for registered members of the Republican Party to participate. So we see very different outcomes depending on whether these contests are open or closed. Now, some argue that it should only be 
members of the parties themselves who get to determine who the party's ultimate presidential nominee ought to be. That's a good argument. Others argue that uh, the closed systems are meant only to preserve the existing establishment power structure of these parties and that a more open, small-D democratic process should take place and would serve in any event to bring more people into the U.S. electoral process and help them understand their role as stakeholders in the voting process to select the so-called leader of the free world. Here to talk about this and explain it all to me and explain a lot of stuff that I don't necessarily understand about this is John Opdyke. He's president of OpenPrimaries.org, a group supporting what they describe as the, quote, simple yet radical idea that no American should be required to join a political party to exercise their right to vote. Prior to becoming president of OpenPrimaries.org, John served as director of development of IndependentVoting.org, a think tank and strategy center for the independent political movement focused on legal, legislative, and grassroots efforts to enact and protect open and nonpartisan primaries. John Opdyke, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. I'm gl- really glad to be here. Glad to have you. Now, listen, I'm, I'm, I'll disclose this right away. I'm kind of agnostic on this issue. So I'm open to your arguments, but I'm kind of agnostic in that I, I support the small d uh, democratic notion that folks really should be able to determine how they'd like to fight and run for what they believe in. So if they want to you know, gather together and organize as a party, I, I, I kind of support that, even as I believe that the uh, the more involved the people are in the electoral process in general, the better. So I'm open to your arguments here in favor of open primaries. But before we get to that argument, before I let you try to convince me, why does a state like New York have closed primaries in the first place? In other words, what is the ostensible reason that they say they have them? And then we could talk about the real reason that they have them. Well, the arguments are pretty straightforward. Um, The political parties are private associations, Mm -hmm. and as such, they have the right, and this right has been given them by the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. to determine the rules of their nominating processes. And that that involves primaries, that involves conventions and delegates and so forth and so on. The problem is that the parties and the legislators that they, they elect that pass the laws that create the system, mm-hmm. they want to have their cake and they want to eat it too. They both invoke First Amendment, private association, mm-hmm. freedom of association rights, and at the same time they demand that the taxpayers fund these activities. Mm. And that is a fundamental conflict of interest. And to your, to your question, of course Americans should have the right to form political parties. They should have the right to form all kinds of political associations, groups, organizations, as they see fit. No one is challenging that right. That's, that's, that's a core value in America. But the question is, and this is a very serious question, mm-hmm. is who does the political process belong to? Does the process itself belong to the people, or does it belong to the political parties? And right now, our democracy belongs lock, stock, and barrel to the political parties from top to bottom. And that is a, a, a very big problem, and it's beginning to come to light. And people are be, 
beginning to engage that issue, which I think is a very positive development. So you you, uh, you cite the fact that they're using uh, public resources to hold these elections, and that's different, I suppose, than a, a caucus system where the parties themselves run it. But in New York, you've got uh, state resources, the election, you know, the, the, the state election commission, the city election commissions and so forth. They're running the primary on behalf of the uh, uh, the parties who then lock out voters. So your, your argument here, it sounds like, is that, hey, if we're going to use public uh, taxpayer resources for these elections, everyone ought to be able to participate in it. In it. In it. Is that correct? Yes, that's one argument. And also, I, look, I, I think that primaries, it's important to remember the history of primaries. Primaries were enacted during the Progressive Era mm-hmm. as a reform, as a way to bring the people into the back rooms where, you know, in the smoke-filled rooms where party bosses were making decisions without any input from the voters. The voters were brought in only at the last minute right. um, to vote. So I'm not advocating getting rid of primaries. What I'm advocating for, what the open primaries movement is pushing for, is public primaries, mm-hmm. not partisan primaries. And this is the system we now have in California, we have in Nebraska, we have in Washington, where instead of a Democratic primary and a Republican primary, you have a public primary. All the candidates seeking office appear on the primary ballot. Mm -hmm. All the voters, whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, a Green, a Libertarian, a Peace and Freedom, Independent, whatever, get the same primary ballot and get to choose from among all the candidates. And then the top two vote-getters irregardless of party, uh-huh. regardless of party, they go on to the general election. This is a, a fundamentally different conception of what a primary is. It's a public primary, right. not a partisan primary. And, and I want to talk very specifically about that, about that top two primary. We call it out here the, the Cajun primary uh, or jungle primary, it's called in some places, and, and concerns about that specifically. But before we get to that, to that as a solution, uh, why do you argue, and thank you for, for, for noting that a lot of people don't realize the primary system itself is more democratic, uh, again, small-D democratic, than what we used to see when this was all decided uh, amongst party insiders only in those you know, smoke-filled back rooms. So sure. the primary system was meant to bring more people into it, but as, as you might argue, John Opdyke, not enough people, at least the way it's carried out now. But what do you regard as the real reason that parties in, uh, you know, for example, in New York, the the political parties there, and even out here in uh, California in the presidential primaries, uh, you know, the Republican presidential primary out here in California is completely closed. Democratic is a little uh, less closed. But why do these uh, political parties want to keep them uh, closed? What are they concerned? Is it a concern about people gaming uh, the primaries, people coming from other parties to to game the system, essentially? That's what they say. I think that's a a red herring. Uh, It's a a phony argument. I think that the parties are self-interested organizations, and I don't begrudge them this. I I think that that they're acting in ways that benefit themselves. And ask any politician, ask any party leader, and they will tell you in a moment of honesty that the best elections are the most predictable ones. Mm -hmm. And the way that you create predictable elections is by having maximal control over who gets to participate in that. So if you eliminate 
a group of voters that are that are more volatile, that are not part of the the party structure, that mm-hmm. are outside of that. You're controlling for a, a, a key factor, and you know I think when it comes to getting members of their party elected, um, it just makes good business sense for the parties to have closed primaries. It's a way they can keep maximal control over the people they elect and to prevent unusual outcomes. Which is an argument that I've sort of been trying to make uh, when people ask about this and, frankly, when they complain about it, you know, and I say, look, the parties can do whatever the parties want in that they are private organizations. They can, uh, you know, they can decide the rules for uh, their primary contests, how the, you know, the delegates are chosen and everything else. And people are, you know, think it's undemocratic. Well, it is because, as you know, John, those are, you know, they're private parties. They can do what they want. And if you don't like it, you can either form your own party or, you know, you know, somehow gather an effort to take on these parties. If the if they did not use public resources to hold these public primaries, actually these closed primaries, would you have any problem with that system if it was, you know, the way, run the way they run caucuses where the parties paid for uh, the cost of the primary vote? Well, again, I don't think caucuses are the answer. I think that primaries are now part of the American political culture, and I think we should keep them. But I think that I agree with you in that I'm not here to reform the political parties. The parties are private organizations. Mm -hmm. They should do business the way they want to do business. And as you're saying, Americans are free to form other political associations or not associate at all. I mean, mm-hmm. independent voters are now the, the largest and fastest growing segment of the electorate. The big issue is that the political parties are not just private organizations. They control the political process. They control the boards of elections. They control how redistricting is done. They control the primaries. They control voter registration. They control every aspect. They even control the presidential debates. And we Americans, we've participated in that. Mm -hmm. We have in some ways ceded some of our power to these political organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that the time has come that we take that back. Not abolish political parties, right? but simply return them to an appropriate place. I, I honestly believe the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, what have you, their appropriate place in American politics should be similar to the NRA, the League of Women Voters, Planned Parenthood, Emily's List, groups on the left and right and center that advocate, that raise money, that push agendas. That's all a very appropriate activity. But imagine if the NRA was responsible for conducting elections in this country. There would be an outcry. Well, uh, but the Democratic and Republican parties are no different, Well, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, well, let me put it, of course, some people would argue that the NRA uh, does control elections in this country, but setting that aside for the moment... Let's look at New York, where uh, so who determines in New York whether there will be an open or closed uh, primary? Is that the parties themselves or is that a statute uh, statutory in in the state? How is that determination made? Do you know in New York it's made by the state legislature? 
Okay, and the state legislature is, you know, a body that can be voted in or out by the electorate. In other words, if the state legislature has decided that, yes, the, the, it will be closed primaries, isn't that something that the voters of New York have ostensibly agreed with because they keep electing these same uh, legislators who, you know, have passed the statute in the first place? Well, on paper, yes. But the reality is that our state legislature is Democratic in name only. Its elected members all were elected in closed primaries. Ninety mm-hmm. percent of the members of the New York state legislature do not face competitive elections in November. Ninety percent. The only competitive races they have are primaries. Okay? Right. There is absolutely no incentive among members of the legislature to open up the system. They benefit from a closed system. So the voters have very little opportunity to impact on that. Now, we have one member of the of the assembly, Fred Steele, who's the only independent mm-hmm. in the entire legislature. He represents the eastern tip of Long Island, mm-hmm. and he's introduced two important bills. One would open up the presidential primaries so independent voters can participate in them. The second one would go would would apply to all federal and state primaries, and it would move New York to a uh, a nonpartisan public primary, as we have in Nebraska and California and Washington. Mm-hmm. And both those bills are now in the assembly, and we're in the process of building a coalition and a movement to see if we can get some traction on them. But the, the New York State Legislature is completely locked down and controlled by party insiders. So the notion that this is a body that's reflective of the people of New York, I think, is naive. And and as you, I'm sure, understand, John, I'm I'm sort of largely playing the devil's advocate here as I'm trying to figure this out. But could the voters of New York not vote those people out? You say that it's, you know, controlled by party insiders. Uh, I guess your suggestion is that even in November, in the general elections, that the choice is between two options in this case, the Republican insider and the Democratic Party insider, uh, both of whom kind of like this two-party duopoly. They like this closed primary system, so there really is no uh, third uh, or fourth or fifth option for voters to change the system. It's even worse than that. It's even worse than that. It's the Democrats and Republicans have carved up the state. Mm-hmm. So in 90% of the districts, if you live in New York City, for example, your choice in November is between a Democrat and nobody. Or, uh, you know, a 22-year-old Republican who's running to get some experience that is hoping to get 10 or 12 percent of the vote. Because in that You're case, in the Republicans upstate. don't put in a, uh, a legitimate candidate because they think there's no right. way we're going to win this because it's so gerrymandered. Exactly. Don't waste resources. Exactly. There's very few districts where where the general election is contested. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about 10 percent of the districts in the whole state. Mm-hmm. So voters, the only opportunity they have to weigh in on, on the actual representatives is in the primaries. Mm-hmm. Those primaries are closed. So in California, mm-hmm. where you have a public primary, you have a completely different dynamic. Most elections in November are competitive. Um, oftentimes you see two Democrats or two Republicans facing off against each other. Um, you, you end this, this kind of um, process of, of making all the decisions in the first round and then the, the, the November election being a rubber stamp 
where all the voters get a chance to do is, is, is kind of rubber stamp what's been decided by party insiders in the primary. And that's a very big development, and it's had a major, major impact on the California political culture. It has, and I should say, I'm out here in California, and I'm, uh, and I've seen this over the past few election cycles since we've gone to this top two uh, uh, primary mm-hmm. system. And I got to say, I'm not so sure I like it. Now we, uh, so I'm, I'm open to your arguments here as well. We we uh, did a series of stories uh, back in uh, 2012 at Bradblog.com. Our legal analyst Ernie Canning did a series of stories about how that top two primary system that we now have in California, how that kind of cuts both ways as far as uh, against both Democrats and Republicans. And let me give an example or two and, and, and get your response. And let me also be clear, we're talking about all of the non-presidential primaries out here in California. The presidential primaries right. are still a, basically a closed systems uh, to, for each party. But other than that, U.S. Senate, U.S. House, etc., everybody sort of runs together, and whoever gets the top two, the top two vote-getters go on to compete in November. Okay, but we had a, a distinct possibility back in 2012 that the voters of the great state of California would end up having a choice only between uh, Democratic uh, candidate uh, Senator uh, Dianne Feinstein and an Occupy Wall Street uh, connected uh, computer scientist guy by the name of David Levitt, who is also a Democrat. Now, uh, I, I don't believe he ended up winning. I believe she actually faced a Republican. But we could have had a situation where you've got a, a city, a, a city, a state the size of California, the most populous in the country. Where the voters have only are only allowed to choose between two Democrats, we have another case where you've got. Uh, I think this was a very Republican district where you had, you know, something like fourteen different Republicans uh, all running. Uh, competing against uh, something like six Democrats, well, there was no way that you know the, that vote was going to be split up between the uh, those fourteen Republicans. So there are complaints, concerns about the top two system as well. That that is also not small D Democratic uh, and and cuts out a lot of voters. Your your response to that, John Opdyke? I, I find it disingenuous, and it frankly doesn't make much sense to me. I don't understand how, though, the, ex- the literally the examples you gave mm-hmm. are cutting out voters. In my opinion, what they're doing is they're empowering the voters. They're putting the voters in the position, not the parties, to determine who's going to make it to the final round. And no party is guaranteed any kind of special treatment. So if the voters of a district mm-hmm. want to create a general election, um, th- this happened in Oakland, for example, a very, very liberal district. The, f- the two finalists were the incumbent Democrat, Pete Stark, the mm-hmm. congressman who'd been there for 40 years, and an upstart Democrat, a guy named Eric Swalwell. Rather than have a token Republican against a Democratic incumbent, they wanted to pit two Democrats against each other. And they had a very, very spirited campaign, and ultimately Eric Swalwell upseated, you know, was able to win that election. Mm-hmm. To me, that's an example of voter empowerment. The parties have to sweat it. The politicians have to sweat it. They're no longer guaranteed safe districts. There are no more safe districts in California. That very concept doesn't exist anymore. And I think that when people grumble about that, they say, oh, you know, in this scenario with 14 Republicans and six Democrats, I love the fact that it's messy 
and <laughs> difficult for the parties to figure out. It should be. It should be about what the voters want, not what makes life easy for the parties and for the party insiders. So even if you have a, a, a district which is, let's say, very, very uh, Republican-leaning, and therefore you've got tons and tons of uh, Republican candidates who are running against just one Democrat, that one Democrat is probably going to get in in a case like that. No, because they're the only Democrat uh, to choose from, whereas all of the Republican vote is split up amongst them, even in a, a strongly Republican district. Again, I, I find I find even the language of the voters being the votes being split up. Mm-hmm. Votes aren't split up. People vote. Mm-hmm. People go to the polls and they vote. And they vote for a lot of different reasons, and there's a lot of different scenarios. This system, in my opinion, creates much more healthy dynamic and gives the voters much more control. And I'll say this. The people that get elected in this system, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Greens, whatever, the people that get elected, they go to Sacramento representing their constituents, all of them. They, they, they're able to go to Sacramento and talk to legislators from other parties. Mm-hmm. They're able to enter into coalitions and conversations with people they disagree with. That is what is so lacking in so many states and certainly in our Congress. Democrats and Republicans can't talk to one another. They can't do business together. And part of what's happening in California and in Nebraska and in Washington is that legislators, be they very conservative or very liberal, they're incentivized to focus on representing their constituents as opposed to playing party politics, which is all about games, gamesmanship and, and advancing the party agenda. And your suggestion is if everyone, if all of the candidates have to compete against each other in a single uh, uh, primary, that they are more likely to uh, not go after each other, not attack, find coalitions within those groups? It's not a suggestion. It's a fact. That's okay. what happens in a legislature that's elected in a nonpartisan way. You know, I, I, I could send you stories about how Nebraska works, where you have Democrats and Republicans introducing legislation together. You have all kinds of new coalitions that break out of political correctness and partisan confines. Well, that's, go- that's going beyond other, the be- primaries, John. I mean, we, we've had, we've, we've talked about the Nebraska legislature. We've had uh, uh, some of those uh, legislators right. on this show, but that, so that's beyond the primaries. That's a, a, a system where at the uh, the state government level, they say, hey, we're not going to separate. We're not splitting up and seating people by party. Uh, that's even bigger than what yes. I thought we were talking about, which is, uh, you know, opening up the it's primary system. Of it. Yeah. Yes, no, they, they use the they use the nonpartisan primary system to elect people mm-hmm. and then when they go to, to the state house they serve in a unicameral nonpartisan legislature. So it's a it's a it's an extension of the nonpartisan electoral system. It's it's a very positive one, I agree. You've got a uh, a tough fight ahead of you to convince the country of all of, of all of this, uh, but I think you make an excellent case. John Opdyke, people can go to openprimaries.org to get more information. They can and should follow you guys on the Twitters. I think you are Open Primary USA on Twitter. Is that correct, John? Yes, that's right. Uh, can I just add one more thing, Brad? You bet. One of the exciting things about the open primaries issue is that a number of important progressive leaders, including Bernie Sanders, including Robert Reich, have come out very strongly in favor of reforming the primary system. And 
I think that that is a very important breakthrough because, and, and I say this as a progressive, the progressive movement has, in my opinion, been overly focused on political reforms that are essentially regulatory in nature, that deal with some of the abuses and, and voter suppression and ways in which the system is antiquated mm-hmm. and, and unfair, but that doesn't really touch the party control of the system. And open primaries, you can't open the primaries without touching the party control of the system. And I would encourage all of your listeners, and I would encourage Mr. Sanders and Mr. Reich and other progressive leaders to stay committed to this issue. Um, you know, Bernie obviously is involved in a very heated election race. Um, but this is something, this issue, this democracy issue, is something that the progressive movement, I believe, um, needs to pay a lot more attention to uh, going into 2017. John Opdyke, president of OpenPrimaries.org, supporting the, quote, simple yet radical idea no American should be required to join a political party to exercise their right to vote. Uh, Simple and, yes, radical indeed. John Opdyke, great talking to you about this. I I hope to do it more in the future, and and, uh, good luck with your campaign here. I I think it's a very important one. Thanks, John. Thanks, Brad. You bet. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Today, given the uh, the death of Prince Rogers Nelson, otherwise known as Prince, who uh, died on Thursday at the age of 57. But let's try to, uh, what do they say, Desi Doyen, always leave them laughing? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's try to leave folks laughing a little bit today. Uh, Stephen Colbert interviewed uh, Paul Ryan uh, a day or two ago, U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan, who has, of course, insisted he will not he will not run for president, even if he is uh, nominated, even if he is drafted, despite uh, the near certainty. And by the way, I'm not all that certain, but the media, the conventional wisdom is that there is a near certainty of a contested convention on the Republican side. Uh, of the aisle uh, coming coming barreling towards us this July in Cleveland, where, uh, by the way, Paul Ryan will be the chairman of that convention, of that Republican convention. But, uh, you know, he said he would not take the job of House Speaker before he actually did take the job of House Speaker. In any event, uh, here's Colbert talking with uh, with Paul Ryan this week on The Late Show on CBS. Yes or no. Would you accept the nomination? No, Stephen, I have said I do not want nor would I accept the Republican nomination. Got it. So you're considering the nomination. 
No, no, I'm not. Okay, I'll give you some time to mull this one over. <laughs> How about now? Still no. So that's a maybe? No, it, it's a no. Like a no-no? Or one of those, no, I don't want to be Speaker of the House, but I'll accept it if you just give it to me no's. It's a no-no. And two no-no's make a yes? <laughs> no, they make a firmer no, period. Okay, period. But if I add two more periods, it becomes an ellipsis. So, possibly? <laughs> so, no. Let me say it in clear English. No. Okay, how about clear German? <laughs> uh, nine. Clear Russian? Yet. Wow, you seem to know a lot of foreign languages. That kind of international experience will really come in handy if you decide to accept the Republican nomination, sir. Stephen, I have said this repeatedly. The nomination should go to someone who actually campaigned for it. For me, that door is closed. Got it. But is the door locked? It is bolted shut. I see. Is there a key under the mat by any chance? No, there's not. And before you asked, there isn't one of those little windows on the door you can punch through and turn the handle like a burglar in those home security ads. Got it. Okay, I apologize. Maybe door was a bad metaphor. Has the ship sailed? <laughs> yes, it has sailed. Okay. And was that ship the SS Yes on its way to Nomination Harbor? <laughs> no. It was the HMS not gonna happen on a one-way voyage to how could I be any clearer? Well, sir, if you don't know how to be clear, I certainly don't. Look, I know it's a big decision. You should probably pray on it and then talk it over with your family. In the meantime, thank you for joining us, and I hope to have you back on the show again soon. We'll be down for a strong maybe on that. <laughs> President Paul Ryan, everybody. The Republican My nominee. thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, John Opdyke of OpenPrimaries.org, and as always to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download our broadcast today uh, and every day for free at bradblog.com. My thanks also to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us keep doing what we do here uh you can drop me an email i'm bradcast at bradblog.com and you can and should follow me on the twitters at the bradblog if you have any complaints you can send them to desi doyan on the twitters <laughs> she is green news report yep. over there you're welcome uh is that it all right that's it until we meet again i'm brad friedman good luck world Everybody.